0: Thanks to everyone for joining us on this call. These are truly extraordinary t- people to help us understand this moment and where we go from here. And we are also extremely lucky to have with us a brilliant musician, Leah Rose, who will be performing a song at the end of this conversation. I'm Anthony Arno of Haymarket Market Books, and I'm going to help facilitate this call. I want to first thank our four co-sponsors, Haymarket Books, The Leap, Debt Collective and the Democratic Socialists of America. During this call, we'll share some information about each of our hosts, how to follow them and how to support their work. We'll also share links for our speakers and for our musical artists. This video is being recorded and we can share it afterwards on the Haymarket Books YouTube channel. So please like this video and subscribe to this channel. If you can share it with others, you can also follow Haymarket and sign up on our email list to find out about other upcoming events, including our online teaching in on Tuesday, March 31st at 5 p.m. Eastern with Mike Davis. And you can register for that event now on Eventbrite. On Haymarket's email list and social media channels, you can also find out about special deals like our 10 free ebook giveaway, which is active for six more days and includes books by Naomi and Kianga as part of those free offers. And also, uh, the print editions of Naomi's vital books, Not Enough, about Paradise edition, and the span are on sale for 70% off right now. Our speakers will each have some introductory remarks, they'll have time to, talk to each other before we read out some audience questions. Please post your questions on live video feed you wherever you're watching this. If that's on the Hammer YouTube, comment on the stream, on Twitter, just post a reaction directly under the video. Uh, then we'll conclude with final comments and a song from Leah. Uh, we'll try to wrap this all up under around 90 minutes. We really appreciate your patience with us. We had 25,000 people RSVP for this event, which is really exciting. And just watching the YouTube feed, I can see people coming to this from Chile, from Finland, from Argentina, from Canada, from countries all around the world. So exciting to have you with us. Uh, We hope many more people are gonna tune in, uh, but this is new for us. We're used to hosting in-person events, so we may need your forbearance if we have any technical issues along the way. So our first speaker this evening uh, is Naomi Klein, uh, the author of numerous critical works. uh, And uh, I really encourage everyone, if they have not already, uh, to watch her latest video at The Intercept coronavirus capitalism and how to beat it. And now I'll turn things over to Naomi.
1: Well, thank you, Anthony. And um, it is really wonderful to be with all of you. And thank you all for, for tuning in in the thousands. It's really, really moving. We didn't expect so many people um, uh, You know, to put this in perspective. Joe Biden had 2000 people <laughs> watching his uh um special uh happy hour yesterday um yes he called it a happy hour virtual happy hour and we have more than 5000 right off the off the bat which i think would indicate that people are not that into uh not not that happy at the moment and wanna be talking about um sorts of uh, incredible profiteering, corporate opportunism, really um, uh, daylight robbery that we are seeing a theft um, of, uh, of, of the public wealth of the commons um, uh, and, and an enclosure of that commons in the interest of the people who are already obscenely wealthy. We are also seeing attacks on civil liberties, on democratic rights. And I am very happy to hear that we have people tuning in from around the world because this is a global crisis. It is a global pandemic that respects no borders. And unfortunately, we have leaders around the world who are swapping um, worst practices, um, whether it is um, Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, uh, and, and and so many others uh, uh, who are looking at the way uh, each other are exploiting this crisis um, and so we need to be trading strategies as well um, I want to I want to welcome our, our viewers from Chile I know I know that um, Chileans just um, went under lockdown I believe just today um, so here we are <laughs> and um, as, as some of you know, I have been writing about how shocks, how, how tremendous disasters uh, have been systematically harnessed by our elites in order to push through a pre-existing wish list of policies, uh, the ideas that are lying around, as Milton Friedman said um, uh, four decades ago now, um, when he said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. And he went on to say, that I believe is our basic function, to keep the ideas ready for when the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. So I think it's significant that the crises are actual. This is not a conspiracy. This is not to say that there isn't a crisis that needs decisive action. There most certainly is, Um, but we are seeing a very selective use of Emergency measures, right? The utilization and the instrumentalization, and indeed the weaponization of states of emergencies to offload risks onto individual workers, onto individual families, um, while the people who are already most cushioned are getting these no strings attached bailouts. Um, so, you know, I don't want to take up too much time here off the top. Um, but I just want to share a few th- a few thoughts. Um, I'm speaking to you uh, from the United States, uh, from my home in New Jersey, um, and. Um, when I wrote is Not Enough for Haymarket Books, which I believe <laughs> Haymarket has been offering books at a very steep discount in the midst of all this, which is what's one of the things that's wonderful about having a socialist publisher indeed offering uh, many titles uh, for free, um, which we really appreciate. Um, but when I wrote Noah's Not Enough for Haymarket, right after Trump was elected, I have a little section about Trump's what I called the disaster capitalism cabinet. Right, mm. um, because I think you know there is a an extreme focus on Trump in these moments, but it's very important to understand that he has surrounded himself with this cabinet of former CEOs, um, politicians with a long track record of serving the interests of corporations, and some of them have a very very. Um, uh, uh, Troubling track record when it comes to exploiting previous crises. So I want to highlight because there has been so much focus on Trump and and sometimes a sort of a tendency to treat other people around him as less dangerous. I want to focus on two of the figures who are most central um, to the U.S. government's response to the coronavirus, um, and that's Mike Pence and Steve Mnuchin. Um, uh, Mike Pence, it it is very much worth remembering. When I wrote The Shock Doctrine, um, which came out in 2007, it, it opened and closed with the story of Hurricane Katrina and how that disaster was systematically exploited in a textbook of what I call The Shock Doctrine, right? And it's a textbook because What we had, and what I reported on at the time, but it was also reported on, the Wall Street Journal broke the story, was that when New Orleans was still underwater, um, there was a meeting that was held in Washington at the Heritage Foundation, which was chaired by the Republican Study Group, and they came up with what they called 32 free market solutions to Hurricane Katrina and low, um, gas prices, and that wish list was privatizing the public school system. Um, it was opening up while wild, uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to d- oil drilling um, it was um, getting rid of all kinds of labor protections. it was a fifteen percent flat tax it was all of the it was the whole wish list. And the person who chaired that meeting was Mike Pence, because he was the head of the Republican Study Group. He was, in, in many ways, the architect of the looting of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast in the aftermath. Hello, sweetheart. I warn people. In sentence, <laughs> you know, we're not going to pretend that everything is normal when it's not. We're working from home. This is my son, Toma. Want to say hi? Hello. All right. This is. And do you want to go get smoke? All right. Don't trip I, I, over that wire, sweetheart. Do not push that wire. All right, thank you. Uh, No, I mean, look, the New York Times published this article (laughs) today or yesterday saying you know, proper etiquette during Zoom calls, no kids or pets allowed. And I think this is part of this broader way that all of the risk and burden of this crisis is being offloaded um, onto individuals, right? I mean, I'm obviously incredibly privileged, but the fact is, you know, my son's school is closed indefinitely. And it's really hard to pretend that my home is a workplace. It's not. It is where he lives and there is no school and we're running some sort of ad hoc homeschool here. And and you're all part of the crew kill him now. <laughs> anyway, um, and Kianga, I do think you should let Ellison join. <laughs> Kianga's son Ellison needs to make a, ca- a cameo. All right, here's Smoke. All right. Okay. All right. No, well, this is a serious point here. I know. All right. So here's Smoke. You asked for it. All right. So this is Smoke. I promised that Smoke would make a cameo. And this is Smoke and Toma. All right, guys. Come on, you guys. All right. Now now they'll come back at the end just to hear Leah sing. That's the plan. You'll come back for the end. All right, Thomas? See you at the end. See you at the end. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so that's Mike Pence, and he is the, the person who, who Trump put in charge of the pandemic response. Then there's Steve Mnuchin, who is now in charge of $500 billion uh, corporate strush, slush fund. Um, there are some strings attached to how this money can be allocated, including things like no corporate um, uh, you know, stock buybacks. But then it says right after all the conditions that all of these conditions can be waived at the, at the discretion of Steve Mnuchin. Now, what is relevant about that is that during the last financial crisis, Steve Mnuchin was personally one of the major profiteers um, of that crisis. He purchased a California bank Um, One West, and earned the nickname the foreclosure king because he collected $1.2 billion from the government to help cover the losses for foreclosed homes and evicted tens of thousands of people, uh, this bank, between 2009 and 2014. One attempted foreclosure involved a 90-year-old woman who was behind on her payments by $0.27. Okay. So this is the individual who has been put in charge of that $500 billion fund. So, yes, we need to focus on Trump and the way his hotels will probably end up profiting from this. But this is not just about Trump. Right. And it is not just about the United States. Um, You know, we are we are we are this is this is a global phenomenon. Um, So we have we have. you know, some hard-won uh, um, elements in the bailout in the U.S. that are not as good as what we've seen in Europe, um, but that nonetheless are better than what the Republicans were, were, were intending to do in terms of funds for small businesses, in terms of increases for unemployment insurance, in terms of, uh, you know, a $1,200 a month uh, um, means-tested bailout for individuals who lose their jobs. But if you zoom out to the scale of this, right, which is more than 2 trillion, it is more like 6 trillion, when you include the money that's being pumped into the money system um, by the Fed, um, it really is crumbs for working people. Um, And and people have to fight for those crumbs. And it may be months before they get their crumbs and they might not get them at all. And then um, the sums of money, the absolute, Cascade of money that is being showered on the corporate sector, as I said, um, with with um, the ability to cut the, the 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 paltry strings that have been attached um, at will by somebody with a proven and extremely. Um, a, a disgraceful track record of profiting off of the last global financial crisis so that is where we are at but I think it goes further than that and and I you know there are moments where I feel like what we are seeing is a kind of a a fast forward a glimpse of sil- of the Silicon Valley dystopia that you um, that, that was already in store for us, but it is just kind of, we've all just been catapulted to it faster, right? And, and like I said, this is not a conspiracy theory. I believe in social distancing. We need to be in our homes. We have to do it. And a large part of the reason why we have to do it is because our leaders failed to heed warning signs um, and and impose brutal economic austerity on the, the public healthcare system <clears throat> to the extent that it was already cut to the bone um, and it was already overstretched and had no ability to, in, to to deal with this kind of an influx that we're seeing. Um, but we, we, we do need to separate ourselves now. But the fact is that the way in which we're separating ourselves means that we are now Spending our lives, many of us glued to screens. Um, our social relations are mediated by corporate platforms like YouTube at the moment, as uh, the platform on which we speak, um, Twitter, Facebook, um, uh, and so on. And and you know, our, our our daily caloric intake is being delivered to us by Amazon Prime, DoorDash, all of these gig employers, um, and. And the people who are doing that labor are incredibly vulnerable, and one can certainly imagine that the people who are profiting most from this, like Jeff Bezos, um, see the only weakness in this, the fact that it is humans who have to be delivering us the food and the packages, and that would much prefer that it was drones and robots and people who didn't get sick, um, or, or not people, but, but uh, entities that don't get sick. Um, So we are seeing, I think we are getting a glimpse of the world that Silicon Valley would like to deliver to us. And it is a really grim glimpse. And so I think it's important that we really absorb it, including the kind of distance learning that universities are moving towards, that schools are moving towards. This isn't the way we want to live. Right. Um, We don't want our social lives to be surveillable, mineable, um, to be uh, to be to to have our conversations be profit centers um, uh, um, because all of it is mineable by by Silicon Valley companies. Um, And so this is, you know, you know, I think we should, in a sense, see this as as um, an opportunity in a way to refuse that future in the way that we come out of this crisis. And so I know that the latter half of our conversation, we're gonna be focusing on how we can resist this. Um, I've spoken for about 15 minutes, so I will talk more about how we resist this later on. But one thing I really wanna emphasize just in closing, because I think there's been amazing strategies that people have come up with to use technology for mutual aid. We've seen amazing worker resistance. Um, and, you know, I can't wait to hear from Astra about the way in which people are resisting debt um, in this moment. I think it is absolutely critical that we develop information redundancies. You know, I, uh, uh, Kianga and I um, did an event um, with our friend Michelle Alexander, also organized by, um, by Haymarket right after Trump was elected. And we talked about how what we would do if there was ever a crisis, um, a massive crisis under Trump. And they tried to use that crisis to attack you know, the civil liberties, democracy, and try to um, you know, try to ban dissent in various forms. And what I said at that event was, we needed to rebel. If that ever happened, we needed to rebel en masse. We needed to do. We need to do the only thing that has ever worked to resist that type of strategy, which is go into the streets en masse. And now we find ourselves in a situation where to do that is to endanger ourselves, is to endanger our loved ones. Right? This won't last forever, but we need to develop. Um, if we're going to resist this, um, we need to develop information redundancies. We need to develop new tools of civil disobedience that allows us to do this, at us to disrupt at a distance. But we also cannot be relying on corporate platforms to facilitate our communications for a potential general strike. Because I do not believe That they are reliable. I believe the plug will be pulled. I mean, if you look at what Modi has done in India, if you look at what other repressive governments have done when they have faced real actual threats of disruption, social media gets cut off, or at least the parts of social media that are actually being used as tools. So, um, I think it's people are using social media right now and these corporate platforms in innovative ways, but we cannot be reliant on them for our, our the, 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 the ways in which we will organize true resistance um, because the attacks will come and and we have to be ready for that.
0: Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Naomi. That was terrific. I um, Next, I'm going to introduce Astra to to speak. I'll just briefly mention that Astra has a forthcoming book with Haymarket uh, that she has written an introduction to. It's by Debt Collective. It's called Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. So please stay tuned for details on that really important forthcoming book. We hope to have it out soon. Astra.
2: Yes, as soon as we can update it. Um, thanks, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's amazing to be here. Thanks, Naomi, for your comments, which I will try to build on, and for reminding us about Mnuchin's past as a foreclosure king, because that that story of him, of his bank foreclosing on a, a woman who owed 27 cents, uh, really is a wonderful parable for our time about the, the, the distinction between the way these giant corporate entities are treated. They can get this massive influx of public money. That's what they got today. While regular people are held to a kind of level of financial accountability that is incredibly punitive and designed to be that way. So, I mean, I guess I've been thinking a lot about language. The fact even that we're calling this a, a stimulus package today as though the economy needs to be stimulated when actually people just need to survive. that that's, that's, we're in a life and death crisis. So I'm struggling with the language that's given to us um, and and trying to sort of reevaluate it in my head. I guess, you know, I just wanna begin building off Naomi's point, you know, that the the real pandemic here is capitalism. Coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 is an illness. And, but many, many people, you know, an unfathomable number of people in the United States alone are going to die of this disease, diseases, you know, deaths that could be prevented because they're not getting access to adequate medical care, because of the shortage of ventilators, because of a shortage of staff, because they're afraid to go see a doctor because they don't want medical debt, um, because they, because our medical system is so fucking confusing that they don't even know where to get help, you know, you need referrals for everything, Um, People are going to get sick if they work in the healthcare sector because they're not given adequate masks, masks and uh, protective gear. So there are so many stories already about the fact that doctors and nurses, not to mention the staff and the you know cleaners and people who sign patients in, are either maskless or recycling paper masks or trying to bleach them and spray them with Lysol. I mean, it, it'd be like you know a family trying to reuse a roll of toilet paper for a month, right? These are disposable products that people are being forced to to use and reuse. So, um, you know, and people are going to be getting sick because they're going to their jobs, uh, many necessary, but many unnecessary jobs and being exposed to the disease because they're not being offered protective gear on the job. They're not being valued or taken care of. So, you know, this is, um, this is a crisis that is, you know, not just biological. It's not just about this new virus, this new pandemic. It's about the economic system we're in. I mean, hospitals, hospitals, do not run with adequate resources. they you know they have to run very close to the bone because administrators don't want to pay for the extra staff, right? So this is an economic problem um, that we're facing. And it's a tragedy. it's a human tragedy because people are already dying. Um, today, as Naomi said, you know, there' a massive corporate giveaway. There are a few, you know tiny silver linings, but basically, the number on the amount of public money that, that's that's being given away is, is absolutely astounding. There are you know, estimates of over $4.5 trillion. Um, you know, and what that shows us is the money's there. The money has been there this whole time to do all sorts of other things with. We could have had beautiful universal health care. We could have had beautiful free education. We could have had paid sick leave. We could have had a jobs guarantee. All these things, you know, this whole question of how do you pay for it that we hear over and over again in the U.S. is just a total bullshit. And every time we hear that question, well, how are we going to pay for it? We should point to um, the actions that were taken today, and we should actually hear in our heads what they're really asking, which is how are we going to profit from it? Because it's not a question of paying for things; it's always the question of, you know, well, who's going to benefit and who's going to uh, who's going to profit? So the money was always there to do something different, and I think you know, we're seeing that at the federal level, I do think this goes to the, the point Naomi we made about ideas, the ideas laying around. I do think we've seen some good ideas being picked up in really interesting ways. So these are my little bits of hope. Um, you know, we're seeing, for example, the issue that the debt collective has been fighting for student debt cancellation. We had been fighting for this and fighting for student debt abolition. And, you know, even, um, the Republicans, even Mnuchin, you know, considered, uh, uh, some degree of student debt cancellation. You know, the Department of Education here has paused collection on student loans and uh, frozen interest. And the Democrats, they failed to succeed, but we're pushing for um, uh, student debt relief as part of the package. So that's one idea, you know, that uh, has gained ground. But on a state level, on a city level, internationally, we're seeing all sorts of interesting things happening. We're seeing evictions be halted. We're seeing uh, bills be paused. We're seeing some prisoners being let out, right? We're seeing uh, transit be made free. We're seeing uh, meals be distributed. We're seeing people suddenly get paid time off and, and sick leave. So there are all there are good ideas be t- being taken up. Um, in fact, a friend uh, and I just started a Google Doc where we could try to, to keep track of all of these things. You know, somebody just in, this afternoon put that uh, rents aren't being collected in Uganda, for example. So all over the world, people are experimenting with better more humane sensible ideas about how to uh put the economy in pause to save lives uh because you know it's not the it's not the economy that needs to be saved it's the economy that's killing us right now um so the problem is i think ultimately about power the problem is that people have no power in the united states because we don't have money and you know the the um In 2008, there was a massive economic crisis caused by people basically, um, you know, playing with these, these mortgages and, and, uh, and in the years since and whatever, it's been 12 years, they've basically just been rewarded for their bad behavior, um, and have, you know, pushed money out the door to their shareholders and enriched themselves and working people have become even less powerful, um. And so what, you know, the debt collective, which I wanna explain a little bit now, basically, you know, we've always imagined, well, what would it be like if if instead of just the financial sector being well-organized and creditors being organized, debtors were organized, right? Because the majority of Americans are in debt. The majority of Americans have no wealth, right? Instead we have debts and our debts are other people's assets that they then buy and sell and trade um, and profit from. That's what interest is. Uh, and so the idea is that debt is an untapped form of, of power and that debtors need to get organized um, to utilize it. This question is, or, or this this problem of debt, you know, it's part of why our society is so fragile right now. It's part of why people can't handle um, the economic crisis that's unfolding. I mean, 3.3 million people applied for unemployment insurance last week. Millions of people are losing their jobs. We're about to see 30% unemployment. That's probably a conservative figure. I mean, and people have no savings to fall back on. What they have instead is debt. Um, The average American dies with $62,000 of debt. I mean, it's like, so people have less, they literally have less less than nothing. Um, And, you know, and so what we're about to see, first of the month is coming up, is that people are not going to be able to pay. So I guess if I have one message for this moment, you know, it's that People should feel no shame about that. They should feel outraged and indignant, and get uh, and we need to get organized. We need to go just like the title of our little pamphlet that Anthony mentioned. You know, can't pay, won't pay, and try to organize as a block. So just like labor unions organize uh, workers to withhold their labor to uh, negotiate with the boss, we want debtors to um, collectivize their condition and to um, negotiate uh, and wield power over creditors or over the government, because often the government has its fingers in our, our debt obligations. The thing is, because people are so overextended right now in terms of debt, what's happened is basically easy access to, to credit is what's masked the last 40 years of stagnating wages. Right, Wages have not gone up. More and more wealth has gone to the top. And so people have covered that up with credit cards, payday loans. Meanwhile, we've been forced to debt finance everything, even our own incarceration in this country. I mean, if you go to jail, you end up in debt. Um, So, you know, the the truth is that uh, this is going to be a moment where the situation goes from bad to worse. People are going to go in debt uh, to credit card companies and payday loans. In fact, you know, the part of the the, uh, stimulus package today is advising sort of what are essentially payday loans for the American public. Um, people are going to go into medical debt right because they're going to have to have treatment for this illness um, and what we need to do is start organizing for that uh, and recognizing that that that's going to be a bigger problem and that these debts are immoral you know nobody should have to go into debt because they're sick nobody should have to go to de- into debt because they've been laid off by by a, an employer who's taking advantage of a health emergency to get rid of um their staff and make sure they're better positioned to survive these are debts that uh, shouldn't exist in the first place. So the Debt Collective has been building an online platform. We think of it as a virtual factory floor, a digital space for debtors to come together and organize. Um, and we invite people to come and join us. Uh, you know, in this sense, I guess one theoretical point I want to make is that this question of how to organize against a distance, sorry, across distance is actually, oh, it's baked into the way our economy functions, right? Because, you um, Uh, You know, we share common economic conditions, we share common forms of exploitation, even if we're not living together as neighbors, and even if we're not working in the same workplace. Right. So we've always had to figure out this challenge of how we come together when, when we're not in the same space. It's just that problem has been accelerated in this moment. So Um, We call it economic disobedience. We believe debtors need to come together and uh, collectively refuse payment uh, to demand, um, not just higher wages um, so they don't have to go into debt. But the public goods, if you have universal health care, you don't have medical debt. If you have free public college, you won't go into student debt. Um, We piloted a student debt strike. Um, that launched in 2015 it has so far won 1.5 billion dollars in student debt relief and got the issue of student debt cancellation onto the american um, political like 2020 conversation it, you know is a pretty important it's been a pretty important issue in the presidential in the democratic primaries at least that strike is growing and i think it's more important than ever so that's strike.debtcollective.org because this is the the thing i'll close with um um uh Americans, basically, not, um, sorry, debtors in in America right now, desperately, um, they need, they basically, you know, our debt payments are uh, money that could be better spent (laughs) on things like rent, food, uh, healthcare, uh, survival, right? And Uh, the government has the power to cancel all debts basically without even going to Congress. It's, It's a very easy thing to do. Research shows that it would provide an economic stimulus Of something like $108 billion a year. So in other words, there are 45 million student debtors. If you cancel their debts, not only are they then able to breathe a bit better in this incredibly stressful time, but everyone benefits because that money is then circulating in the economy, going to other things. So this is something that's incredibly easy to do. It's a very sort of responsible economic demand, but it's also something that is morally just because those debts were immoral um, to begin with, because it was about commoditizing something, education, that shouldn't be a commodity. So we invite people to, to join us. And also, uh, um, if you do join, sorry, I keep having other things I want to say. To be on a student debt strike is to be making zero payments. And there are lots of ways people are doing that. So a million people default on their student loans every year. So uh, in, our, in that case, we say, don't be ashamed that you defaulted declare yourself on strike, people are in deferral, forbearance, they're making uh, zero dollar payments because of their income. Um, in our minds, this is these are all forms of striking. And the point is to politicize a common condition, right, to not have shame, to come out of the shadows, to collectivize. And this is something we need to replicate in other areas of our lives with other forms of debt to build a new kind of economic power at this moment when working people desperately need power. So that's it.
0: Thanks, Astra. I also want to say that there's some cards that are being shown of how to connect with the organizations, including Deck Collective, so you can find out about that campaign that Astra mentioned. Um, Our next speaker is Kiyunga Yamada-Taylor. And in addition to the two books uh, from Haymarket Books, which are um, available as part of the special Uh, the free ebook of how we get free, and also um, a discounted copy of From Black Liberation, sorry, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. She has a really important new book, very timely, from the University of North Carolina Press called Race for Profit, How Banks and Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership. And I'll turn it over to Kinga now.
3: Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Naomi. Thanks, Astra. Thanks, Leah, for uh, being here um, to talk about these really uh, important um, issues. It's been a long time since we all uh, talked together, and so I'm looking forward um, to the discussion. Uh, You know, this is this is hard because there are uh, literally um, a million things to talk about. Uh, I I have been. reading as, you know, most people have uh, every shred of news um, over the last uh, couple of weeks. And so, um, you know, I've organized a couple of things. So the, the, the one thing I'm, I'm thinking of just in direct re- response to what Naomi and Astra have brought up is that I think um, it's an important issue to, to talk about the physical Distance and what social distancing means for um, our organizing and uh, capacity to, uh, to protest um, right now uh, when it feels like it's most necessary. Um, but I also want to say that uh, the challenges that we face are more than just physical distance. Um, I think that we have to figure out as a left Um, how to bridge some of the political and social distance um, that has uh, uh, undermined, um, maybe too strong of a word, but constrained uh, the ability, um, the capability of our social movements um, thus far. Uh, And so I think some of the issues tied into that are, how do we work towards a common view of the, the problems and challenges? Uh, that we face? Um, How do we work toward seeing our um, connection uh, as ordinary people? Um, And so in this situation, I think the old Occupy formulation uh, still has great resonance of the 1% and the 99% and how do we um, build on the uh, connection and solidarity between the 99% um, that puts us in, a, in in a situation where our protests um, are not just uh, uh, viable but effective um, uh, and so you know I think that this is a challenge um, it's been a challenge when so much of the the the, the struggles of, of people are are hidden um, from our society more general and so I think I uh, start. That, that sounds like to 22 minutes. I'm not. Uh, just say last two weeks there have been in the main depicted how the hardships of working class life, whether that is uh, inadequate access to health care, absence of child care, low wages, no sick pay, living paycheck paycheck to paycheck. Um, and housing insecurity uh, have been strewn all over the media. On the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer today uh, is a wide angle um, shot phot- photograph of mostly black and brown men crowding around a uh, local soup kitchen. The headline, paraphrased, uh, was When food supplies run low, this well known soup kitchen is a destination um, for poor and working class people. This is a typical. The usual course of action in the US is to ignore the conditions of poverty and hardship. Outside of the unusual circumstances produced by a crisis within the status quo, the lives of working class people are hidden. A disproportionate number of people are Black, Latinx, immigrant, poor, relative to the market. By these stories, mainstream news sources where popular consciousness and developed with the stories of the rich, famous and beautiful, the celebrated and worshipped. We end up with a distorted view of American society. Society looks richer, healthier, whiter than it actually is. Life almost always looks easy save the drama that all-stars celebrities encounter at one time or another. The effect is to convince ordinary people that their problems are their own. It meshes well with the ingrained and widely accepted premise of the American dream, where the United States is supposedly a country with unencumbered social mobility where hard thing hard work can make anything possible. Personal responsibility uh, success is attributed to personal responsibility, as is failure. Um, whether you succeed or not, Uh, is based on your own personal attributes and behavior. So we are told. And the more that the lives of ordinary people are excluded, the more that this seems true. And when it seems the truest, most ordinary people are left feeling isolated, burdened, and weighed down by blaming themselves or others like them for their own problems. Of course, some blame elected officials or even the rich but they may see themselves as exceptional or just cynical. But there are times, typically in the midst of a crisis, when the true character of our society reveals itself and the brutality of our social hierarchy is laid bare. In 2005, when Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath ravaged the Gulf Coast, it too provided a deeper look into the darkness of U.S. inequality. As actor Danny Glover said at the time, quote, When the hurricane struck the Gulf and the flood waters rose and tore through New Orleans, plunging its remaining population into a carnival of misery, it did not turn the region into a third world country as it has been disparagingly implied in the media. It revealed one. It revealed the disaster within the disaster. Grueling poverty rose to the surface like a bruise to our skin. If Katrina, expose the racism and inequality of the American South and the Gulf Coast in particular. The coronavirus crisis shows that these overlapping issues of race, class, inequality, and oppression are not regional afflictions, but are endemic to American society. The news asks, how could this be in all of the articles that they are now uh, sharing about inequality in the US? These are problems, as Astra said, of American capitalism. You do not have a society with 607 billionaires, fully 200 more billionaires than there were in 2010 without having crushing poverty. There are 38 million people living in poverty in the US because there are 600 billionaires. They are wealthy because of low wages. They are wealthy because of the absence of sick days. They are wealthy because of homelessness. They are wealthy because of foreclosures. They are wealthy because of evictions. Then some of them will become wealthy and even wealthier because of coronavirus. It is important to name the problem because there are those who will tell us that markets can work that we can fundamentally fix the problems in US society without radical change. But there has never been a single moment in the history of this country where capitalism has not created enormous misery and oppression for tens of millions of ordinary people. This was a country founded on the genocide of its native population that relied on enslaved labor, working that land to generate enormous, unprecedented wealth that then relied upon the exploitation of successive waves of migrant labor to multiply that wealth a million times over. And even in the so-called golden age of US capitalism in the 1940s and the 1950s, it came with the exclusion of black workers and women. The exclusion of black workers was so extreme that in the midst of the longest economic boom in US history, black workers across the South, rose up to crush Jim Crow segregation, and from the middle 1960s until the end of that decade, more than 500,000 African Americans engaged in urban uprisings to demand access to the riches of American society. In fact, there has been no golden age of American capitalism. It has been an unbroken cycle of extraction, poverty, racism, sexism, oppression, exploitation, and struggle part of the mythology of American exceptionalism and the idea that this is the most just place on earth is the accompanying idea that it is a society that is inherently progressive, always improving and moving forward. In reality, the only forward movement has come through struggle. Naomi, as she talked about, has written about shock and how the political class has used social catastrophes to create policies that allow for private plunder. She calls it disaster capitalism or the shock doctrine. But she has also written that in these moments that create opportunity for the forces of reaction, there are also opportunities for ordinary people to transform these conditions in ways that benefit the mass of humanity. The scale of the corona, the coronavirus crisis is so profound that there is also now an opportunity to remake our society for the greater good while rejecting the pernicious individualism that has left us utterly ill-equipped for the moment. The class-driven hierarchy of our society will encourage the spread of this vicious virus unless dramatic and previously unthinkable solutions are immediately put on the table. As Bernie Sanders has counseled, we must think in unprecedented ways. This includes universal health care, an indefinite moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, the cancellation of student loan debt, a universal basic income, and the reversal of all cuts to food stamps. These are the most basic measures that can staunch the immediate crisis of deprivation caused because of the millions of layoffs and the millions more to come but emergency stop gaps also show what is possible. If moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures are possible in the midst of a crisis, why can't they be possible in so-called normal times? If it's possible to put pause, why is that not a possibility in so-called normal times? If it's possible to release people from prison, to decarcerate in times of crisis why is that not possible in normal times the sanders campaign was an entry point into this discussion most recently it is some public appetite and even desire for vast spending and these desires do not translate into votes because they seem a risky endeavor when the consequence is four more years of donald trump but the mushroom in crisis of the coronavirus is changing the calculus. As federal officials announce this new uh, trillion-dollar aid package, we can never go back to banal discussions of how will we pay for it. How can we not? Now is a moment to remake our society anew. That's
0: it. Thank you, Kianga. I'd like to see if Naomi or Astra first wanna um, respond to either of uh, uh, any of the other comments that have been shared here, and um, then uh, I can bring in some of the uh, terrific questions that folks have shared on YouTube and Twitter.
2: Sorry. Thank you, Kianga. Thanks, everyone. I mean, I want to pick up on Naomi's comments about digital platforms and organizing. Um, I, you know, I think this is a really important point and And, and to, to connect that to this this challenge of sort of organizing and creating solidarity at a distance, um, you know, one effort I want to highlight, I mean, you know, part of why we built this virtual factory floor, this this platform at the Debt Collective where you can dispute your debts and where we can organize strikes is because we wanted to create a space for radical organizing that wasn't Facebook, that wasn't Twitter, that wasn't a corporate platform, that doesn't depend on the exploitation of your data. What we think is data should be used for the people, right? The financial sector sees uh, you, you know, it, it, trace, it tracks your data and gives you a consumer score that you don't know and And uses that against you to exploit you but what if we collect people's data um, and use it to empower us so that we can build the power we need so you know there are platforms being built another great platform is coworker.org and this is a site that is you know attempting to give us space for workers, mostly to write petitions, but, you know, for for workers that don't have a union, because unions are under attack in this country. And they've seen an explosion of growth in the last couple of weeks. Remarkable, tens and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of American workers using the platform and, you know, and organizing for what should be low-hanging fruit but, you know, in America, like even that's fucking hard. So we saw um, they saw uh, Starbucks employees, you know, uh, successfully use the the website to come together and demand paid time off at uh, closures of the cafes with paid time off for the workers. And that's huge for workers. I mean, Starbucks is a huge company. Um, post office workers who do have a union are, are using the platform to organize um, to get protective gear and stuff like that. So I think um you know, to me, it's not an either or, like, are we offline or online? Because I think also what coworker highlights is that, you know, it's still going to be a hybrid, because a lot of people are working from home, and, um, and uh, living the quarantine lifestyle, but plenty of workers are still going to work. And they're mm-hmm. being treated like total shit, even worse than they were before, because now they're just showing that they're their you know, lives are, are, uh, you know, disposable. So, People are still protesting. Amazon workers are walking off the job, demanding paid time off. Um, garbage workers are striking. Um, I believe that there were, um, workers in Maryland at a Purdue chicken plant that also walked off the job. So the thing is, you know, people are still being forced to work and they're going to fight back and they also need digital tools, um, to help them. And those of us who are in a position to amplify those struggles, to pay attention to them, to put pressure on their bosses from another angle, really need to step up to the plate and do that too.
1: Um... Thank you, Astra, um, and thank you, Kianga. Uh, um, I want to pick up on where Kianga left off in terms of the fact that, that moments of shock, moments of profound crisis, yes, are moments when we can lose a whole hell of a lot, when we can be catapulted backwards and we can see the already grotesque economic and social divisions widening still further. And we are still, we are dealing with the impacts or trying to deal with the impacts of this pandemic within the fallout, within the rubble of the austerity policies of the foreclosure crisis, um, of the decimation uh, of, uh, uh, of labor standards that grew out of the last economic crisis, mm-hmm. um, and that is, uh, you know, it, you know, w- when we look at um, how hard it is for Southern Europe to deal with the impacts of this crisis, we cannot mm-hmm. forget that Southern Europe was ground zero of mm-hmm. the most sadistic austerity policies after the 2008 financial crisis when the social sphere was utterly ravaged in the name of bailing out the banks. And is it any surprise that those hospitals, um, despite Mm -hmm. having public health care, find themselves so ill-equipped to deal with this crisis? So we need to be making those connections. But it is absolutely true, as Kianga said that moments of crisis can also be moments where we catapult ourselves forward because of the unveiling that is underway. That word unveiling I heard when I was in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, where many people talked about what was happening in Puerto Rico as a process of unveiling, just as Kianga talked about um, Hurricane Katrina being a kind of unveiling of what was already there, of the pre-existing crises. So when people talk about wanting, when are things going to return to normal, we have to always remember that normal was a crisis. Is it normal? Is it normal that Australia was on fire? A couple of months ago, is it normal that the Amazon was on fire? A couple of months before that, is it normal that millions of people of Califor in California suddenly had their electricity cut off because their private electricity provider um, thought that that would be a good way of preventing yet another massive wildfire? Normal is deadly. Normal is a massive crisis. We don't need to stimulate the death economy. We need to catalyze a massive transformation to an economy that is based on protecting life. It is transformation that we need. Uh, The organization that I co-founded called The Leap uh, is part of a wave of of organizations that we're in conversation uh, with that are launching different kinds of people's bailouts, uh, green stimulus, programs, um, looking at ways that we can have a truly just recovery. We are in a better position than we were in 2008 and 2009. We have done a lot of work as social movements in the intervening years to have people's platforms, to have our ideas lying around. And now needs to be a moment of maximum confidence, of maximum commitment to push those ideas forward, to demand them, to be willing to disrupt for them, right? Because people are seeing what so many people already knew, as Kianga said, that this economy that we have has always been willing to sacrifice life on a massive scale in the interest of profit. That is the story of colonialism, it is the story of the transatlantic slave trade, it is the story of US interventions and military coups around the world. This is an economic model soaked in blood. And now people who have been blind to that are turning on their television television sets and watching Fox News commentators and politicians say, maybe we should sacrifice your grandparents so that we can get the stock prices going. And they're going, what? What kind of system is this? As Kanga said, this is not new. This is not a more radical phase of capitalism. What is... What is more radical is the scale of the sacrifice. Because now, because of of our our profound ecological crisis, because of climate change, it is actually the habitability of the planet itself that is being sacrificed. And that long predates this crisis. And that's why when we think about what kind of response we are going to demand, it has to be grounded in the principles of a truly regenerative economy, an economy based on care and repair, as we talked about at the LEAP. So at the LEAP we're talking about a sort of a three-level a, a three, a, a three level process, and I don't say a three-stage process because it all has to be simultaneous, right? That there has to be the immediate rescue, recovery, whatever you want to call it. People are in crisis, as Astra was saying. People need rescue right now, right? And people are rescuing each other, but... but what we need is that immediate debt abolition. What we need is immediately saying, you do not pay the rent this month, right? We also need recovery in, you know, where, where, where there are sectors that are being hit very hard and we need recovery for the workers. And these are the, 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 the core principles of a, of a just recovery, right? Recovery for work, for a rescue for workers, not the corporations. But we also need to reimagine in this moment, right? And the good news is we aren't starting from scratch. The good news is that we are not in that situation that we were in in 2008, where we hadn't done that cross movement work. We've all been part of the Sanders campaign um, uh, on this call. We're gonna be listening to Leah's beautiful music and many of us heard her music and so many incredible Sanders videos. That campaign grew out of so much of this movement work. What was beautiful and porous, not to say perfect about that campaign and still is because it is still running, and I refuse to believe. I am sorry, I refuse to believe that the end of this story is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Mom. I can't believe that this is the way this story ends, um, because it's not what our moment calls for. It is not what our moment calls for. That 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 spike that Biden managed to achieve. Was about this fantasy of being able to go back to this thing called normal that doesn't exist. That is itself a crisis. It reflects people's people's profound trauma and fatigue and fear. Fair. But the fact is, we are not going to get to safety unless we fight for it. It's not a place we can revert back to. It's a place we have to build together and a place that we have to fight for. So that so that's so we need we need recovery. We need rescue. Um, and we need, we need to respond, but we also need to reimagine. Uh, and that's the work that is going to be ongoing. Um, I'm really heartened by the ways that people are collaborating in this moment. and, and there's a there's an interesting irony to it because it we have we, it's true we have never been so physically divided but maybe it's because we are so physically divided that we are so determined to reach towards each other, um, out of our silos, out of our individual organizations and NGOs. Um, <clears throat> And I really see that happening in a lot of really exciting uh, 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 initiatives out there. So I hope that this is, um, uh, you know, I'm excited to hear people's questions. I hope that we can do this again. I mean, I, 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 I love all of you. And as some of you know, Astrid and Kianga and, and I, at one point, we tried to do a podcast. <laughs> um, we, we, did, we managed to do it a couple of times, but, um, but then we all got too busy. Um, so, you know, we're all stuck, we're we're all stuck at home now, so (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll do these videos again. I feel like we should, because we're, we're, because we're really scratching the surface. And one thing I just want to say, I just, one last point has to do with, one of the things I really feel is being unveiled here has to do with care, has to do with the labor of care, which is so systematically, um, uh, you know, denigrated and devalued and really just trashed in our culture, right? We do not value the work of care because under capitalism, we don't want to admit that we are interdependent. We don't want to admit that our success is never just our own, right? So we have to invisibilize all of these structures that prop up everybody, right? Um, and. You know, overwhelmingly, the people who do the work of care, of propping up the whole structure, are women, women of color, people of color. And there's some. You know, this morning I woke up to an image of a group of nurses who had, who were wearing garbage bags instead of scrubs, um, because that is what they had been forced to do. And it was such a vivid visual representation of the fact that we treat the labor of care like garbage in this culture but we are in a moment of revelation where we are all feeling so much gratitude towards the, the people who do the labor of care right and it's it's nurses it's custodians um, you know it's the people who are delivering the packages that are our lifelines it is the people who, who you know who grow our food the, the, the our interdependence is being made visible for better and worse. And I think the pivot here, the transformative moment here, has to do with grounding whatever is next in a valuing of that labor of care. We can never discard and devalue that labor ever again. Um, so that's 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 what I want to.
3: I just I just want to um, make a, a couple of quick points. And I know we want to. Um, Anthony's got some questions, and then there are other questions from people who are listening. Um, To this, Um, just just two points really. One is the 2008 uh, financial crisis um, really opened up. It was one of these moments of of revelation um, where you know the the crisis of inequality, the the ways that uh, bankers um, uh, and corporatists around the world. Uh, you know, destroy the, the global economy, destroy, destroy ordinary people's lives um, and, and get away with it. And it was in the outgrowth of that moment that the Occupy movement um, erupted uh, around this issue uh, of the violence of inequality. Um, and in this country out of that uh, emerged Black Lives Matter. Um, the Really the two most significant uh, political um, movements to come out of the, the, the last um, 10 years. And I, I would argue uh, both of which um, really uh, created the, the, the conditions where Bernie Sanders' uh, candidacy um, was was possible. Um, and there were lots of, you know, unresolved questions, I think, with uh, what happened with those um, struggles that I think at some point we will have to uh, return to. But I use them as, as uh, examples of what is possible out of these um, kinds of uh, traumatic uh, social and economic um, uh, crises. Um, and I think most recently, there are things to point to. And I think that it's important because it can be uh, completely overwhelming to think about Uh, the the level of of crisis, Um, you know, there's a a daily death tally uh, uh, that just continues to grow. This can all feel um, incredibly uh, overwhelming. Um, And because of the social distancing, uh, it can also feel like there's absolutely nothing that we can do. Um, But there have been, uh, I think, some of the uh, mutual aid uh, the people have talked about some of the work in particular uh, that Mariam Kaba has been involved with and is on Twitter. Uh, it seems like 24 hours a day uh, getting uh, funds and distributing them uh, through organizations. Uh, there have been the takeover uh, of homes uh, that begin with Moms for Housing in Oakland but has moved to um, uh, L.A., uh, where there is now a crisis of uh, coronavirus outbreak among homeless populations. And so people are taking over uh, government-owned housing um, in L.A. Uh, there have been reports of wildcat uh, job workplace actions of dominoes workers, of garbage workers in uh, Pittsburgh who are demanding um, hazard pay, uh, of Amazon workers uh, who have been exposing... Uh, how uh, they have been expected to continue to work with absolutely no attention paid to um, uh, uh, sanitation. And I think the overall uh, uh, example of the power uh, of working people um, who have been forced to stay at home and, and the, you can see um, viscerally uh, who actually makes this society uh, uh, function. Um, And and the speed with which uh, the the owner class, the employer class, uh, is willing to sacrifice the lives of people uh, to get the the so-called economy moving again uh, underlines the power that uh, working class people um, uh, in this country and around the world have. And so we have to be able to harness that um, to organization, an organization, not as a fetish of organization, because it allows us to generalize our experiences from one place to another place, which means that we don't have to reinvent the wheel uh, in one place uh, uh, to uh, to the next. It allows an organized way from which we can uh, learn about and understand um, our experiences. And you know, I don't think any of us have a fully fleshed out idea uh, of what that will entail, um, but in terms of not just repeating that there's a crisis, that struggle breaks out, uh, that a movement may break out, um, but then ultimately bogs down um, around these questions of political distance, not physical distance. We have to figure out how do we overcome those so that this is not just a repetition of crises past, but that we are actually able uh, to move our struggles forward um, in a significant way uh, which will allow us to actually tangibly take up these issues of, of transformation and not just reform. Reforms are important because they can make a difference in, in people being able to live uh, uh, today or not. They're, they're absolutely consequential. But we also see the cul-de-sac of it, you know, that, that it's, it's actually not enough because as soon as the pressure lets up in the slightest, these people go back Uh, uh, climb to bring back the status quo uh, uh, at at any stake um, or at any cost. And so these are some of the questions I think that uh, um, our movement, the left in general, has to begin to take up in a more systematic way.
0: So I think I'll jump in here uh, with a couple of um, questions. Uh, It's just fantastic to see how many people on this call. uh, I think we're We've been in somewhere around 15,000 people uh, globally, and people sending in some really important questions. Uh, I'll just mention uh, before I read some of these out, and what I I think I'll do is I'll read them out as a group because we don't have a lot of time left, and then um, understand that we won't be able to get to all of them, but uh, each of the speakers can pick up the questions that they want to take up. Before I do so, just really quickly, Kanga mentioned the importance of organizations, and right now there are so many individuals and organizations that need our support, and we know these are really hard times for so many of us, but if you are in a position, or anyone you know is in a position to donate funds, all of the groups sponsoring tonight's event would be extremely grateful for any level of support. Small donations add up and are vital to these groups coming out of this crisis stronger for the critical battles ahead. Uh, So please think about uh, if you can, uh, and we'll send out information after this call about how to uh, link up with all of the organizations that hosted tonight's event. Um, I'm gonna read out a couple of questions. Um, Some of them have been touched on, but people were asking for maybe a little bit more uh, conversation about them. Um, I will say uh, to Naomi's earlier point, uh, we had a number of questions saying, "Can we do this again, specifically with this group?" And maybe, if we can't, if you can't do the podcast, maybe we could do a weekly uh, check-in video conversation during this crisis. Uh, so people uh, were asking about uh, having this call happen again uh, with you all. There was a question about um, examples of protest in this moment that have been inspiring to any of the speakers. I know last week I was on a demonstration that was my first in-car protest outside a detention center in New Jersey. Are there other examples that people can share? Um, People are asking about solidarity, specifically international solidarity in this moment. Um, When borders are being enforced and travel bans are being put in place, how do we envision forms of international solidarity and specifically around debt cancellation? Um, because of the nature of odious debt on a, on a global scale. <clears throat> um, there's also a, a question about um, the uh, a question of factory takeovers um, and uh, a, a comment that, Naomi, you've done work on uh, Argentina and the, uh, the film The Take, uh, and you and Avi Lewis's introduction to The book Sin Patron published by Haymarket, are there lessons to be learned from the factory occupations movement? Um, And then finally, a a question about indigenous perspectives and how important those are in this moment and how they inform your own thinking about this crisis and and how to address it.
1: Um, I'll take a stab at a couple of those. Um, are we, like, everything okay for time, Anthony? I'm not keeping track.
0: Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. six right. eleven, 11 mm-hmm. and we're... Yeah. I just want to make
1: sure that we that we hear Leah. <laughs> Absolutely, it.
0: I will All make right. sure of it.
1: Cool. Um, so, I mean, personally, I would love to do this um, again. Um, you know, Kianca is very hard to get a hold of. Astrid never answers the phone. They're very difficult, <laughs> but like, I'm in. Mean, if it doesn't happen, just know I'm not the weak link. <laughs> um, in terms of protests, I mean, I was very moved by a protest by a group of nurses um, uh, outside of a Kaiser uh, health facility in, in California where they were um, were were driven, and I mean, you have to imagine how bad things had to get for nurses who are so dedicated to their patients to stage a protest outside the hospital, six feet apart, um, begging really for the protective gear that is their right. and um you know i think that that kind you know i think i think we will have to figure out how to how to protest at 6 feet apart uh in the physical world i think there's a lot that we can do digitally there's a lot that we can do by withholding our labor but i do think that we are going to have to get out there and it, physically and and figure some of this out at some point um Uh, uh, And Kianga mentioned uh, some other fantastic uh, examples, but those are examples, these are all examples where workers are still on the job and there are a lot of workers who are not on the job and may be told that they have to return to work and there will be questions about whether uh, whether or not to do that. There's also some rent strike actions that are going on where people are hanging white sheets from their windows to indicate that they're not going to be paying rent. And there's also been protests in Brazil, um, uh, which we can all learn from, where people have been going on their balconies in the great Latin American tradition of the Casarolazo and banging pots and pans against Bolsonaro. Um, You know, I think governments should fall for what we are seeing now, um, and we are starting to see that, we need to see more of that. I mean, this we, we need to be as we need we need to be outraged, truly outraged, and we need to be inspired by the kind of mass popular movements that have uh, toppled governments in moments of crisis before. Um, the factory worker takeover is a really interesting interesting question because one of the things that we haven't talked about here in the sort of which is a really obvious point in terms of the kind of fast forward to dystopia that we may be headed towards unless we really take the reins here is um, that we are looking at a wiping out of 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 small and medium-sized industry on a massive scale and just you know, the, the nightmare scenario is like Jeff Bezos is the only guy left standing. Right. Um, you know, I mean, that's obviously a bit of an exaggeration, but a few that this further accelerates um, the, the the economy of the colossus. Right. At the expense of everyone else. And, um, you know, I think as these smaller businesses go into crisis, we need to be pushing for worker ownership for cooperative ownership, for transformation of these workplaces, rather than being shut down and rather than selling off, you know, the restaurant, you know, equipment, every workplace should have the option for the workers to turn it into a cooperative before it goes into bankruptcy. And this is what, you know, was fought for in Argentina that, you know, that that, that the workers become the first creditors right? As opposed to the last creditors. And so this is you know one of the lessons that, that, that grew out of that movement. I want to shout out um, our friends at The Working World, Brendan Martin and crew, um, who are looking at this. Um, uh, but, you know, there are many, many uh, workplaces, including restaurants, but not just restaurants, where small, where where owners may be deciding to walk away, but that does not mean that these businesses need to close. They can be turned into worker cooperatives. So I think that's something we really need to lift up in this moment. Um, great, and you know, it's a great question about indigenous perspectives, you know, in this moment, and and you know, it's certainly uh, true that we, ought, you know, one of the things that is being unveiled in this moment is is, um, that, well, first of all, I I think we need to to highlight the fact that Indigenous people um, are among the most vulnerable to this pandemic because Indigenous communities are the most under-resourced. and 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 you know have have you know have healthcare facilities systematically underfunded under-resourced lack of clean you know, clean water uh, and and on and on and on um, and so you know this this crisis exacerbates pre-existing vulnerabilities pre-existing uh, um, inequalities including health vulnerabilities right pandemics do discriminate right so people who have underlying health conditions um, are more vulnerable to this pandemic, and those underlying health conditions are unevenly distributed because pollution is, une- un- uh, is unevenly di- distributed. This is a respiratory illness, right? And so communities that have, have had pollution sited um, in their backyards, front yards, um, you know, that that, that creates a, a situation where bodies are more vulnerable to this pandemic, so we need to be aware of this. But we also need to learn um, from, messages that Indigenous communities have been trying to send us about the, the, the absolute um, crisis that is our way of life, that is the way, our, our relationship to nature. Um, does anybody else want to jump in on that?
2: Yeah. Um, or maybe I'll jump in on the internationalism and debt stuff question, if, if it feels good to pivot to that. Yeah. I mean, on your point on the, I, I do want to say one thing related to what you just said, which is about... Um, Vulnerability is not being evenly distributed because I did want to say a, a word about the the way we are um, taught to value lives in our society. And many uh, uh, disability activists are really alarmed right now the way uh, in the ways that um, people are being discussed in terms of okay, well it was just old people, it's just people who are immunocompromised, right? And that when we talk about rationing things like ventilators. Um, you know, doctors are going to use paradigms that um, include things like whether a person's socially useful. So a lot of disabled activists I know are really alarmed right now. And this is, I think, something, um, you know, another important element of this to, to think about whose life is valued um, and who's bearing the brunt of this crisis. Um, I just want to think on internationalism. I mean, I, part of our work as the Debt Collective has been so inspired by what is going on in other countries and the way that debt functions in different contexts. So the fact that um, debt has always been a tool of empire, of colonial power, right? So sovereign debt crises um, are something that we've learned a lot from. And when countries are, are subjected to odious debt, we also took a lot of lessons from the Um, situation of Greece recently and their debt crisis. And the fact that, you know, one country, even if it got a left-wing government, couldn't stand up to the whole, the, you know, system of global finance. And so that, what that one lesson from that example is that we need internationalism, you know, we, we desperately need to create um, bonds between Um, debtors of different countries. And there's all sorts of interesting work going on. I mean, right, you you know, in the last few months, students in Colombia have been uh, burning their student debts and even throwing Molotov cocktails and burning buildings and stuff like that. So, you know, this is something that is an issue everywhere. Poor people are forced into debt and subject to predatory lending. Um, What we need to do is figure out how to actually collaborate across borders. I mean, going back to the example of Greece, you know, we have, um, common enemies. I mean, Goldman Sachs was involved in a, a sort of toxic interest rate swap there that, that fleeced the country of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I can't remember the exact figure, but, you know, there are also, um, uh, you know, obviously based in New York City. So I think part of it is figuring out um, common targets and and organizing in that way. But it's something we're just beginning to do. And we have to figure out um, how to scale it up together. I mean, all over the world, I mean, I think as we face this, this economic calamity, I mean, I think the basic, you know, message that I began with of like, many people are not going to be able to pay their bills moving forward. And Naomi mentioned the fact that rent strikes are popping off all over. There's a website called rentstrikes.ca that's starting to sort of keep track of them. I mean, the thing is, people are not going to be able to pay their bills. And so our, our you know, thing is, don't do that alone. And don't be ashamed. Do it collectively. We have to collectivize. Again, this is, capitalism is all about individualizing us, making us alienated, alone, afraid, Right, um, fit, you know, dividing us from our our fellow employees. That's what the sort of gig economy, digital economy is all about, right? You drive your Uber, but you never meet your coworkers. You never even meet your boss. You're just, you know, bossed around by an by an algorithm. I mean, we we ha- this this the social distance is something that's already baked in our society that we have mm-hmm. to overcome. And so that's why our slogan is, "You are not alone." As an a space, L-O-A-N. You know, we've always, we need to come together, uh, reach across that distance and aggregate our power. So, you know, tell no, don't pay, um, but do it with others. Uh, Don't, you know, don't drown alone, resist together. And because what we need to do is we need power. We do have really good ideas. We've got, we've got great ideas. I agree. We're further along than we were in 2008. We need to build that power together.
3: Yeah. I just want to make, um, a couple of points. I'm running from the sun and <laughs> I've, I've never actually sat in here at six or 15 in the, uh, you, you know, have a halo. In, so. <laughs> we like it. I know. Okay. So two, two points. Someone texted me, um, talk about the prisoners. Um, so it, we would be remiss not to talk about the situation in Rikers, um, Island in New York, uh, where, um, uh, those who, which is a jail that is is a pretrial uh, uh, jail situation for um, many people uh, who are locked up in there in which there has been a coronavirus outbreak, um, and so both people inside and outside have been demanding the release uh, of uh, uh, people who are currently incarcerated. Um, in Rikers, and I I think that is important. Um, Also, there have been hunger strikes initiated um, by uh, uh, immigrant detainees, uh, people who have been detained by um, ICE uh, because of the uh, conditions um, in these uh, 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 detainment centers. I read an article a couple of days ago that um, there there are three family detention, um, immigrant detention uh, uh, centers in the U.S., two in Texas and one Um, in uh, uh, a town outside of uh, Philadelphia Um, and in Texas, uh, there have been complaints of hundreds of people uh, who have uh, COVID uh, symptoms um, and there is no water, there is no hand sanitizer, uh, there is no way to actually uh, um, maintain the protocols uh, that everyone around the globe has insisted are uh, uh, crucial to stopping uh, the spread of, of this virus, and so um, we have to remember those, be in solidarity with those and then, in terms of um, internationalism, I think one thing to uh, uh, to just talk about um, and be aware of is the uh, acceleration of um, ruling class nationalism um, as a way, uh, a kind of false recipe for holding uh, the virus uh, in check, but more importantly as a deflection from their own responsibility um, for how this virus is ravaging uh, populations of ordinary people. I mean, the crassest example is, of course, Donald Trump uh, uh, referring uh, to the the coronavirus, the COVID-19, as either the Wuhan virus or uh, the Chinese virus, just unvarnished racism. Um, and so I think, you know, part of uh, um, international solidarity, um, I think, has to be uh, standing up, in particular, to this anti-Chinese uh, racism uh, that, you know, not only manifests itself in the hate political speech uh, of Donald Trump and people like him, um, but also in physical attacks um, on uh, Asian-descended people uh, across the United States. Is somehow responsible. Uh, uh, for the spread uh, of this virus. So part of international solidarity starts at home um, and is is found in rejecting the racism uh, of uh, our ruling class um, and really, uh, uh, you know, unpacking that and talking about that and and protesting it as well.
0: All right. I have some... um Closing announcements I'll make, but I'm very excited to introduce you all to Leah Rose, who's going to perform a song for us.
4: All right. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, Thank you all so much for doing this. This is so needed, uh, and all of you are just so inspiring and powerful. (laughs) Um, I would imagine that a lot of the folks watching already have a pretty good critique and (laughs) understanding of power structures and the history, Um, um, but for anybody that doesn't, this is a really good place to start. incredible humans and um, uh kianga that was absolute fire when you did that entire <laughs> speech uh thank you and i i took a lot from that um i'm gonna play a song called the times they are changing from 1964 and it's unfortunate that this song is more relevant today than ever and I think um, the more that people understand the history of this country, um, you know, just like kinga said, said, it, it's founded on genocide, the deep racism that it's been a part of this the whole time. Um, the more people can really understand the history, the less surprised we are to find ourselves where we are uh, right now in this moment. It's not really that things are, um, s- they're not really getting worse. They're getting more exposed, right? We're, we're all of a sudden seeing the real, the real, real. So, um, <laughs> man. Yeah. Thank you all for doing this. Uh, I'm super happy to be here. And yeah, Here we
5: go. Come gather For the times, they are a-changing Come, writers and critics Who prophesize with your pen. Keep your eyes wide The chance won't come again And don't speak too soon For the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who That it's naming the loser now will be later to win And the times they are a-changing The times they are a-changing Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled There's a battle outside and it's raging It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times, they are a-changing Come mothers and fathers throughout the land Oh, what is it? Come, come, mothers and fathers throughout the land.
4: And what is the words? Bob Dylan, man. He writes so many lyrics. Um, let's go. Your sons and your daughters are
5: beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are a-changing The times they are a-changing The times they are a-changing Now the line it is drawn, the curse it is cast times, ooh, the times, ooh, for the times, they are changing.
0: Thank you, Leah. <laughs> so <laughs> <Thank> beautiful. <you. laughs> uh, folks can follow Leah at Leah Rose Music on Twitter. I want to thank again Naomi, and Astra, and Kianga, and thanks to all of you who are watching this live stream. Thanks also to our four co-sponsors: Haymarket Books, The Leap, Deck Collective, and Democratic Socialists of America. We hope to see you all at our online teach-in Tuesday, March 31st at 5 p.m. with Mike Davis. And stay tuned for announcements about Naomi Kianga-Nastra's sequel to tonight's amazing discussion, Solidarity.